Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today. Before we get into episode six, I want to thank all of you for listening and hope you will stick with us when our recordings do not turn out perfectly. In order to have access to many of our guests, we end up recording in new places or through an online platform, so it's difficult to maintain some consistency. As podcast listeners ourselves, we understand that quality is important to our listeners, and we hope you will excuse us when the episodes don't turn out perfectly. Now, on to the show. Welcome back to the Economy and Farm Management Podcast. Today we have Dr. Kelly Tillman. She's with the Department of Entomology at The Ohio State University, where she's a field crop entomologist and state extension specialist. Welcome, Kelly. Hi, Elizabeth. Hi, Amanda. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, thanks for joining us. So today we want to focus on late season insects and there's really two main categories that you like to talk about this time of year and that's defoliators and pod feeders. So why don't we start out with defoliators because I think that can sometimes be the most noticeable but not always the most severe issue to talk about how we judge when we need to actually make a spray on defoliation. Sure, sure. We can talk about uh, a whole bunch of different defoliators and kind of lump them together to some degree as things that feed on soybean leaves. Uh, There are a number of different species that uh, might be of concern. Uh, One of the most obvious and one that we've been kind of hearing a bit about so far this summer is Japanese beetles. These are big, shiny green beetles that are pretty obvious when you see them in the field. But there are other uh, leaf-feeding insects that might be there in conjunction or by themselves, uh, such as bean leaf beetle, which tend to be um, yellow to orange, smaller beetles, often with black dots on them a number of different caterpillar species that might be feeding on the leaves, uh, grasshoppers and a few other things. One of the challenging things about dealing with defoliating insects is that uh, you might have a mixture. You might not have um, a threshold level of any one particular species, but collectively they're all contributing their bit of damage. Um, Other times, maybe you do have a preponderance of one species, but it can make uh, scouting for individual species a little bit difficult if you have a mixture of species because you might be sub-threshold for any one of them, but they're collectively doing damage. So one of the ways we can approach that, if you have a mixture of insects that are feeding on uh, leaves of soybean, is to use a general defoliation guide as uh, your threshold for management decisions. So this is when you would assess the percent of defoliation that you're actually seeing in your field and make a management decision based on that percentage. Now there's a couple things to keep in mind about doing this. The first is that soybeans can tolerate a lot more defoliation than you think and compensate. Soybeans are very good compensators and so they can actually tolerate a fair amount of gnawing and you won't see the difference in yield. So I think a lot of people tend to overreact a little bit to the levels of defoliation that they do see when really things may not be so bad as people think. The general defoliation thresholds that we recommend are if you are in pre-blossom soybean, if you're in the vegetation stages, we recommend uh, taking action when you are at 
30 for 30% overall defoliation. And that's not just on a few plants or on a few leaves or on the edges. That's pretty much across the field on um, taking the whole plant into consideration. So that's, that's kind of a lot of defoliation that we can tolerate. If we are from blossom onward, the R or reproductive stages, so anything from blossoming through pod stages, we bump that down a little bit and tolerate 20% defoliation of the soybeans. And uh, just as a caveat to that, um, you do, if you have a lot of defoliation and you're considering treatment, you do want to scout to see if insects are still present, because if you've had some insect that's moved on, um, there's no point in spraying if there's nothing there to kill. So what does 30% or 20% defoliation look like? Well, that's another important thing to consider because the human eye is just really bad at estimating percent defoliation. It's a, it's a hard thing for us uh, to assess visually. Most of us um, tend to overestimate defoliation. And so I strongly encourage people to use a defoliation guide. And this is a set, a picture that has a set of leaves on it where the defoliation has actually been quantified and measured so that you can look at this guide and see, oh, this is what 5% looks like. This is what 10% looks like. This is what 30% looks like. And using this as a visual reference is very important for not overestimating the amount of defoliation that you have. We've got one on our website. All you have to do to find our website is Google um, Ag Insects OSU. But if you can't remember that, just Google Soybean Defoliation Guide and a number of different examples will come up on the web for you. So uh, when you scout for defoliation, uh, do use one of these guides. Another important tip is don't just look on the edges of the field because the damage tends to be worse at the field edges. A lot of these insects uh, start, come into the field at the edge, and they'll start feeding at the edge, and that's where the worst damage will be. So you don't want to just walk a few feet into the field to make your decision. You really want to get into the field, get a good coverage of the field, walk throughout the field, to get a feel for what the average condition across your field is. So I recommend that you look at at least 40 plants throughout the field if you can and try to pick them somewhat at random. You don't want to like gravitate to the ones that look like they've been fed on the most. You want to assess what the, the true average condition of the field is. And another tip is uh, don't make your assessment of a given plant just based on the top of the canopy because that's another thing about defoliation. It often tends to be a little bit worse at the top of the plant, whereas you really wanna make your decision based on the condition of the whole plant. So a way that you can force yourself to consider the whole plant is to do this procedure. For each plant, take three trifoliates, a trifoliate being a set of three leaves on a stem. You wanna take one trifoliate from the top of the plant, one from the middle part of the canopy and one from the lower part of the canopy. And then you are going to, for each trifoliate, focus on just one leaf. You want to throw away the leaf that has the most damage, throw away the leaf that has the least damage, and keep the mama bear leaf. So this is another way to force yourself in towards the average condition. So what I like to do is take a bucket in the field. I go around and I collect all of my trifoliates. 
And then I bring them out of the field. I throw away the most and the least damaged leaf from each trifoliate. And then I spread what remains out. And I let my gaze travel over these leaves and use a defoliation guide to make my best estimate using that visual guide of percent defoliation. And I think if you uh, go through this procedure, you'll find that what looked on the surface like rather a lot of defoliation actually in the end turns out to be not so much as you thought. So again, once again, the thresholds that we recommend for defoliating insects are pre-bloom 30% across the whole field and post-bloom and during pod stages 20% defoliation. I really like that strategy for trying to be objective when you're looking at at your damage in the field. I would have never thought of something like that. Yeah, and you really put your finger on it, Elizabeth. It's trying to force yourself to be objective because when we see defoliation, the knee-jerk reaction is to think, oh, that looks terrible. So this is a procedure where you really force yourself to um, try to um, come at a real answer rather than what your knee-jerk uh, assessment, initial assessment was. So how often, in Ohio, do you think or estimate that we actually need to spray for defoliators? I would say that a lot more spraying happens for defoliation than is absolutely necessary. Um, certainly sometimes uh, there's good cause to spray, but I bet that um, uh, just off-the-cuff numbers, I would bet about half the time the spray could have been avoided if um, people did a rigid assessment of their percent defoliation. And we talk about resistance a lot with weeds, but it's something we need to pay attention to with insects. And we also have beneficial insects out there. Um, so it really comes down to um, managing the system as a whole, right? And we want to keep in mind integrated pest management and spraying when we don't need to, could be taking out beneficial insects in some cases. That's a really good point, Amanda. And uh, there, there's a growing evidence that pollinators, different bee species in soybean, um, even though soybeans are self-pollinating, there's growing evidence that the pollinators, if there's a good pollinator community in the soybean, that can actually um, enhance yield. Uh, that's work and research that's still undergoing, but it seems like there may be something to that. Uh, so even apart from just the, the, the fact that it's good to conserve uh, pollinators, um, there are tangible, perhaps, benefits right in the field. And beyond that, certainly we have a great deal of evidence that um, predatory beneficial insects in and soybean and corn and other crops, things like lady beetles and lacewings, uh, do a great deal to help suppress pest populations. And in fact, sometimes we see a resurgence of pests after a spray because the beneficials have been knocked down. So certainly if you have a pest problem uh, that it rises to the level of economic damage, it's appropriate to spray, but there are very good reasons not to spray when you don't need to. And even beyond all of that, um, producers are taking a very close look at their input costs these days. And so anything you can do to save even a few dollars per acre is going to help the bottom line. Yeah, that's a great point also with the economic side of it. So not necessarily a defoliator, but a leaf feeder is um, spider mites, which we 
tend to see in drier weather. We're having a little bit of that here in Ohio right now. And it's kind of sporadic depending on um, how the storms pop up. Um, but spider mites, there's pretty limited control options as far as insecticides go. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Spider mites are tricky. And when we have hot, dry weather, particularly sustained hot, dry weather, that's when we really become concerned about flare-ups of spider mites. And spider mites can kind of take you unaware. They can reproduce very, very, very quickly. And so if you're not keeping an eye on the situation, you may wake up one day and you've got a raging spider mite problem. Um, spider mites, uh, you can tell spider mite damage by looking for stippling on the leaves, like little, look like little, um, little speckles on the leaves. And the damage tends to start in the lower part of the canopy and then works its way up, uh, up through the canopy as the problem, as the populations become worse and as the populations become more severe. So it's, if you have stippling in the lower part of the canopy, you're just sort of an average condition. By the time you get stippling into the middle part of the canopy, and if it looks like the hot, dry weather is going to continue, you're going to want to probably consider taking a management step. And by the time you've got uh, extensive stippling in the top part of the canopy, you are at the stage where you've already sustained some economic damage. And it's really important to realize that a lot of insecticides are completely ineffective against. Uh, spider mites. So you can't necessarily take the product that you would use for most of your insect pests and expect it to work. And in fact, some insecticides can even flare spider mite populations and make them worse. So some of the pyrethroids, uh, for example, uh, Warrior as one example, uh, we have seen to actually um, uh, flare up spider mites after a treatment. So you want to, if you have spider mites, you want to be very careful about the product you select. And you're correct, Amanda, that there are not a whole lot of choices. Uh, one uh, option for the control of spider mites is chlorpyrifos. So that would be the active ingredient in a product like Lorsban. Another uh, product and probably the only pyrethroid that would be effective um, and not uh, a bad idea for spider mites would be products containing bifenthrin. Uh, so for example, um, Brigade might be one such product. And then there are some miticides, uh, just a few. One is uh, the active ingredient abamect abamectin. Uh, so Agramec would be one example of that. And then there is a uh, mite growth inhibitor product that kills mite eggs and juveniles, but does not kill the adults. So that would be uh, an example of something you would apply early as the populations are starting to build to kind of nip a population in a bud, but it's not the best as a rescue treatment. So etoxazole, um, that would be uh, a trade name of zeal. So you want to be very careful in your selection. You want to make sure you want to pick something not only that's going to help, but isn't going to make your problem actually worse. Yeah, that's really interesting. I mean, we just had the discussion about not spraying unless you need to. And if you are going out there with a insecticide for defoliators, um, you could end up making spider mites worse if we're in a dry period. I have seen it many times, Amanda, where somebody went through and, uh, in July, late July, they just wanted to, quote, clean up the field, and they went through with uh, some sort of uh, pyrethroid just to just general purposes, and then turned around and 
couple weeks later they had a crazy spider mite population. So it's definitely something to keep in mind. So switching gears a little bit, if you pay attention to the USDA crop progress reports, we're seeing that soybeans are creeping ahead of the average as far as development, and we're already seeing a lot of fields developing pods. Um, so those pod feeders that you mentioned earlier are going to start being something we should look for? Yeah, so there's a couple different types of pod feeders that um, you should be aware of, and uh, stink bugs are pod feeders that are sort of insidious because the damage is not really obvious. Stink bugs have straw-like piercing sucking mouth parts and they will pierce through the pod wall and feed directly on the developing seed and then if you were to open the pod up you would see this sort of blasted shriveled sunken little seed but if you were just looking casually at the plant you wouldn't necessarily notice uh, the difference because you don't see that that chewing. And so the time of year when we start to worry about stink bugs is when the pods are forming and developing. So as we approach that period, it's a good idea to be aware of um, stink bug populations in your field. Now stink bugs are fairly large insects. We have several different species that occur in Ohio. The ones we typically have the most problem with are uh, green stink bugs, uh, brown stink bugs, and now the invasive brown marmorated stink bugs. And these stink bugs are not subtle, small insects. They're about as big as one of your fingernails. And sweeping is uh, the best me method to uh, uh, assess stink bug populations in your fields. Uh, like a lot of insect pests, they tend to be most abundant on the edges. So you don't want to just sweep on the edge because you'll get a skewed idea of what's going on in the whole field. So I recommend that you take a sweep net into 10 different parts of the field and take 10 sweeps in each location. So just walk along and take 10, 10 pendulum sweeps and then look at what you have. And we have a uh, free guide to the stink bugs of Ohio that's available on our website and uh, that would be Ag Insects OSU and uh, count the number of stink bugs in 10 sweeps and you can count all the species together the same you can count adults and immatures the same and the threshold that we recommend for this is if you um, per each 10 sweep set um, if you are growing the soybean for grain, our threshold is four stink bugs per 10 sweep set. If you're growing the beans for uh, food grade or for seed, where the seed quality is of uh, extra importance, we recommend uh, a threshold of two stink bugs per 10 sweep set. And uh, stink bug is sort of a sneaky pest because like I said, you won't necessarily notice the damage if you're just kind of walking through looking around, but then uh, at the end of the season, you wonder why you have all of these little shrunken, um, blasted, shriveled up little seeds that might have been from your stink bug feeding. A little bit more obvious for pod feeding damage at the tail end of the season are bean leaf beetles and grasshoppers. Through much of the season, bean leaf beetle and grasshopper would be defoliation uh, things that feeding on the leaves, but towards the end of the season, uh, when the pods are nearing the end of their development, you can get pod feeding by grasshoppers and bean leaf beetles. 
Um, it can be a little bit hard to tell the difference. Bean leaf beetles tend to make a pocking pattern on the outside of the pod that can open the pod up to disease. And grasshoppers tend to take more of a chomp out of the pod, but it, the difference is sort of hard to tell. The fields that are most at risk for pod feeding at the tail end of the season by these insects are the fields that are still green when other fields are drying down. So if you've had a lot of uneven planting in an area and some fields that were planted earlier are starting to senesce and yellow and dry down, but some fields are still juicy and green, these insects will tend to gravitate towards those green fields and you'll get a higher concentration in the fields that are still green at the end of the season. And so those are the fields that you want to uh, pay particular attention to um, at the end of the season. So if you still have insects present, uh, and again, no point in spraying if the insects have already been move, have moved on, but if you still have insects present and you're at, let's say, R5 or R6, uh, we recommend a threshold of 10 to 15 percent pod injury. So go out through, select 10 plants throughout the field, pick off the pods, um, examine the pods, determine what percentage of the pods have pod feeding, and if you have 10 to 15 percent of the pods that are injured, and if the insects are still present, um, you might want to yet consider a, um, a treatment. But uh, important caveat at the end of the season like that, you want to keep your pre-harvest intervals in mind, and you some, some products have um, several weeks worth of uh, harvest interval and you don't want to choose a product or make, a, make an application that's gonna mess up your harvest schedule. That's a great point. Um, back on the stink bugs, is it the case where they tend to be more on the field edges and that's um, an insect where you can just go through the field edges or do you need to get into the field further? Yeah, so it's a really good point that um, they do tend to be edge pests in a situation where you have a big infestation they can get deeper and further into the field. What I usually recommend people to do is if they're short on scouting time and who isn't, then start your scouting program by sweeping on the field edges. And if you don't have any stink bugs on the field edge, chances are pretty good you don't have any elsewhere and you can kind of move on. If you do have stink bugs on the field edge, you can start on the field edge, assess the degree of, of problem on the field edge, move on in, make sure you don't have a problem deeper into the field. And if you can sort of ascertain that your problem really is still uh, restricted mostly to the edges, you can often get away with an edge application, but you do wanna verify that the problem hasn't worked deeper in. I think with the way the economy is going, guys are trying to preserve yield any way they can without really increasing their cost. So that idea of just making the edge application, I think is a really great, great idea for guys to try if we start seeing issues later on this season. Yeah, particularly uh, if you can verify that the problem doesn't extend any deeper. Now, however, um, I actually don't recommend edge treatments for uh, for spider mites because spider mites are so subtle that you can have a problem in the field even if it's at the worst and the most obvious on the edges um, things can flare things can be lurking in the field that would be hard for you to see that could flare up so in that particularly instance with spider mites 
I generally recommend just bite the bullet and do the whole field. But for other insects, uh, other creatures like stink buggy, I think it can be a good approach as long as you're diligent about verifying where the insects are in the field. Because it's not just, of course, the product cost, it's the cost of uh, the fuel and your time. Yeah, so those stink bug issues that we, we tend to see towards the end of the season, you know, those areas where the pod feeding has occurred and those beans you can see aren't um, senescing as quickly, that often happens near tree lines and ditches. Are those areas where perhaps we should prioritize scouting? We do tend to see problems starting near uh, shelter belts, tree lines, places where the vegetation has built up because those are places where the stink bugs may have been hanging out um, or overwintering or otherwise um, staying until the soybeans became juicy. So uh, we do tend to um, see, see those problems at those places first and that's a, that's a really good point. Um, I, I do recommend taking a good perimeter um, check though, not just at the tree lines because uh, they can move in from other, other uh, locations. They are fairly mobile. But what you mentioned about the, uh, the green stem, that is uh, an effect that we can see from stink bug feeding, stay green. And that can be a clue at the end of the season when the rest of the field is turning yellow and then you've got this green strip around the edges that can be a, a clue that you did have heavier stink bug feeding along the edges. So one insect that 10-15 years ago I remember scouting for and seemed to be a big issue was aphids but we really haven't seen a lot um, with soybean aphids lately. What's going on there? Yeah, so soybean aphids uh, are an invasive pest and they first hit the U.S. about the turn of the century as, a, as really a big, big deal. And in some parts of the country, they are still one of the primary pests of soybean, particularly further west in states like Iowa and Minnesota, the Dakotas. It's still a pretty big deal. But in the more eastern part of the corn and soybean belt in recent years. We haven't seen quite as much uh, activity with soybean aphids. They're still there. In fact, just yesterday, uh, I was out at a field day and we found a few soybean aphids in the soybeans. Um, but uh, soybean aphids are one of those pests where they're, they're always gonna be there and it's not impossible that we will see flare-ups uh, in a given year if things are just right. Uh, so I would caution people not to forget that this pest exists. It might not be at the top of your uh, priorities or radar screens, but just be aware that it is in fact still out there in Ohio. We, you would tend to see pro the populations starting to build at the end of July or the beginning of August. And these are uh, another pest where the damage is subtle. They're sucking pests, so you're not going to see the uh, obvious damage as with leaf feeders. Um, if you want to get a quick idea about the soybean aphids in your field, take a transect through the field, look at at least 20 plants, and look at the undersides of the leaves to see if you see any there. And our action threshold for soybean aphids is 250 per plant. So that's a, you know, a fairly large number of aphids per plant before we recommend you start lining up treatment. Interestingly, we don't actually 
have yield loss until you get closer to 650 aphids per plant. So that 250 aphid per plant guideline is a guideline for when to make a management decision and start lining up your treatment and you've got um, several days to um, get your ducks in a row before you actually reach a yield um, loss lessening situation. And interesting that you mentioned soybean aphids and earlier in this podcast we talked about insecticide resistance. This is a, a living example of the fact that resistance is real and it's not just with weeds because we are seeing um, insecticide resistant soybean aphid populations cropping up in uh, South Dakota, in Minnesota, and Iowa. And uh, these are um, soybean aphids where the insecticides are losing their efficacy uh, because they've been treated so much with the same classes of products. So it's, it's just a, an example, a living example of um, one of the reasons uh, why we want to avoid using insecticides if they're not needed uh, because insecticide resistance does happen. So do you have any thoughts on why the issue hasn't been as bad here? Do we have some predatory insects that are keeping them under control or is it just maybe our weather patterns? I think it's a number of things, uh, Amanda. I think that it has to do with, uh, we have a lot more landscape diversity in this part of the country than out in the, the plain states. And I think having a lot of landscape diversity contributes to having a, a better overall um, populations of beneficial insects, predatory insects, natural enemies that help keep soybean aphids down. I think the single greatest force in helping to keep aphids suppressed uh, to some degree is a healthy natural enemy community. I think also maybe our climate is a little less um, friendly for soybean aphids than in some other parts of the country, but largely I think it's an ecological factor that um, we uh, have a decent balance of, of beneficials in many of our fields and that helps keep things kind of calmed down a little bit. Also, I think moisture takes a, uh, has a role. Um, the, one of the beneficials that we don't think about is often with insects are uh, insect killing fungi, pathogenic fungi we call them. And uh, I have seen entire raging aphid populations taken down in a matter of a few days because of a, of a uh, fungal population, the fungal uh, insect fungal disease that that goes through the population and so I think with our moisture conditions in Ohio and certain other places that 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 is one of the classes of uh, beneficials that we have. Well Kelly is there anything else we, you'd like to share with us before we wrap this up? Well I just always like to uh, remind people that a scouting program and being proactive is uh, your best friend for, for nipping problems in the bud. And most of the problems that we've discussed are problems that can be managed if you are simply aware of what's going on in your field. And uh, so it's worth the uh, time to take the effort to actually go into the field and see what's going on, uh, not just drive by and, and uh, get into the field, take a look around, be aware of what's going on, and most problems can be dealt with. Kelly, you mentioned the Ag Crops Insects webpage, which we can link in the episode description. Are there other resources you'd like to share with us? 
Sure, of course, the, the CORE newsletter is an excellent uh, resource, and we tend to uh, be try to be timely with our articles. So if we're hearing a lot of um, questions about a certain insect, we'll try to have an article, a timely article in the CORE newsletter. So if you're not signed up for that already, uh, that's a great resource, not just for insects, but for all manner of agricultural issues. That is a super resource to stay, stay abreast of what's going on. Of course, you can reach out to me, Kelly Tillman, in the Department of Entomology. My email is tillman.1 at osu.edu. Also, my colleague, Andy Michael, is also a field crop entomologist who helps with extension. And you can reach out to uh, him and as well as your uh, local uh, county extension professionals who can uh, answer many of your questions or refer to us in more complicated situations. Kelly, thank you so much for joining us today. I know I feel a lot more ready to go out to the field and start looking for some of these pests now that, now that I've talked with you. Well, it's my pleasure. I really appreciate the invitation to uh, talk to you today. And I'm, um, the door's always open, the phone line's on. Uh, if I'm out in the field and I can't take your phone call right away, I will return your call as soon as possible or email is another good way to reach me and I am happy to help however I can. Thanks for your time, Kelly. We really appreciate it and we'll be back in a couple of weeks with a new topic. Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.